The Zone Coverage Podcast Network. This podcast is presented in front of a live Astadio audience. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It is Midwest Swing, part of the Zone Coverage Podcast Network. You can find us on Twitter at Midwest Swing Pod. You can find Zone Coverage at Zone Coverage MN. I'm your host, Brandon Warren. You can find me on Twitter at Brandon underscore Warren. And rolling solo in the, the podcast studio today, we do have Justin over at the computer. No microphone, no Tom Schreier, no Ryan Turnquist today. But if Ryan was here, you can bet we would be talking about Marwin Gonzalez landing with the Minnesota Twins on a two-year deal worth $21 million. No obvious starting position for him with first base occupied by C.J. Crone, second base Jonathan Scope. Shortstop, Jorge Polanco, and third base, Miguel Sano, obviously. But they'll mix and match, put him in the outfield a little bit. And I think the big thing to be sure of is that maybe C.J. Krohn loses a little bit of playing time at first base with Miguel Sano sliding over. Now, with that said, we'll dive into that a little deeper when we get Ryan back in the bit here. We do have a very special guest on the phone today. You may remember him as a Kansas City Royal debuting in the 90s. Or you may remember him as a Milwaukee Brewer, as the podcast producer does. You might remember him. As a Chicago Cub, you might remember him as a Colorado Rocky. We know him as Lefty Glendon Rush. And uh, what's going on today, man? Nothing. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Glad to uh, hop on and chat with you guys. What? Um, wh- where can you be found on Twitter? It's just at Glendon Rush. Am I not mistaken? I think that is correct. Yeah, pretty sure that's it. And then your picture is Kenny Powers. Is that a uh, spirit animal for you or... What uh, what is the motivation between having him there for you? For you? Well, one of my favorite all time shows and characters, um, and and a friend of mine, a, an artist back in Los Angeles, uh, Pat Roberts, actually did a lot of cool baseball cards where he superimposed, um, you know, anything from a, a Lego head to <laughs> to a monster head or something on on cards, and he made one uh, of Kenny Powers uh, on one of my cards. So of course, I kept that. Now, I heard that Kenny Rogers is a pretty close real-life imitation of Rod Beck. Would uh, would you be able to collaborate or corroborate that? Is is that fairly close? I mean, I know he played around the time you did, but I've heard that that's maybe yeah, the you know, loose I, interpretation. Yeah, I wasn't around Rod um, at all, but I definitely I definitely think they're in the same hair department. Kenny Powers had a, yeah. had a great uh, moment on the show, so I, and I know— uh, Rod Beck had some some pretty good flow going when he was pitching. <laughs> so you're from the Seattle area. You went to Shorecrest High School. Um, you're the only MLB player or even professional baseball player to have ever gone there. But some familiar names, Rain Wilson from The Office, and uh, he transferred out before he graduated. But also Ken Bone, and not the Ken Bone everyone's thinking, but actually I think it was a college basketball coach. So you or Dwight from The Office might be battling for the most uh, prestigious alum, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think uh, I think uh, Dwight's got me beat. He's a pretty uh, pretty popular character, and one of, one of my favorites. I was a big uh, fan of The Office, so I enjoyed watching uh, Rain Wilson's work over the years. And uh, yeah, pretty cool. We went to the same high school. Yeah, no kidding. And so you have been done pitching for quite a while. You were coaching for a while for Lake Elsinore and the Padres system. But what keeps you busy these days? I'm at home. I'm uh, being a being a husband and a and a dad, and I'm helping out at, uh, North Oldham high school here in, uh, Oldham County in, uh, Kentucky. Um, my oldest son is a freshman there. And so I'm kind of floating around and helping all three of the levels, freshman JV and varsity and any way I can. And 
it's nice to be out there and be around some young kids and try and help them further their baseball career with whatever knowledge I can, I can throw out there to them. So how'd you find your way to Kentucky after growing up in Seattle? Uh, kind of randomly, actually, we had, uh, uh, my niece, um, ended up going to U of L here and she loved it. This part of the country stayed here. And my brother-in-law moved out here after he retired. So we kind of all left California and ended up in, in uh, prospect Kentucky. So I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's a beautiful kind of, uh, horse country, farm country, a little bit of land, green grass, nice people. So I'm, I'm enjoying the lifestyle change. Yeah. I've heard a few different players wind up there, whether it's during their careers or afterwards. And sorry, are you near any other retired players? Cause I think, I think Zach Duke's got a place there. Uh, Kentucky, Tennessee kind of gets to be a place where players like to congregate. So it's not exactly by chance, but anybody else around there near you? Yeah, there's a few guys here. There's um, Todd Wellmeyer, who is a, a teammate of mine with the Chicago Cubs. I remember him, yep. The um, relief pitcher, right? Sean Green, Sean Green, the relief pitcher. Uh, Chris Burke's here. Um, yeah, there's a there's a handful of guys that live in this area, and, and there's some more in, in Lexington, too, you know, which is only about an hour away. So, yeah, it's a good little good little spot, especially if you're going to retire and, and, uh, enjoy the laid back, uh, lifestyle, slow pace of life. Uh, so to speak, uh, that's pretty much what we're doing here. So, I mean, were you a natural, I mean, did it really come to you naturally or did you kind of have to adjust over the span of a few months or a year before it felt like home? Uh, it's, it's taken a little time. It's definitely different. You know, you're, you're cruising around on some, you know, some two lane roads and driving through, you know, farms and everything else. Um, sometimes just when you go to the market. So it's definitely different than, than being in L- LA where I was, I was, I was in, uh, La Cunata, just North of Los Angeles for about 18 years. So, uh, it's been a, been a definitely a culture change. Yeah, no question about it. So you were drafted in high school, 17th round in 1993. I, I saw that you had committed to college, but ended up signing. Was there ever any question in your mind that you would sign if you maybe had gone lower or was there a number that they had to match or reach? What, what was the process for you getting drafted and signing with the Royals? I think at the time I was really interested in playing professionally. If, if there was any way that was going to work out, uh, I definitely was grateful for the opportunity that university of Washington gave me to, to go there. And, and, uh, and, you know, I ended up having to pass, pass on it. So I, I felt that going into the minor league and kind of making that my college baseball was, was the best route for me. And it ended up working out now that I look back, you know, I probably, you know, was still pretty young and, and not too um, mature and filled out yet. So I definitely could have used the college experience as well, but fortunately it worked out. Now in 1993, you went to the Gulf coast league and then they put you in the Midwest league, which I believe is low a, I can't remember if that's, I think a short season, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, you were on the same team as Johnny Damon in Rockford, I would assume, Illinois. Yeah, I'm looking it up here. Uh, Rockford, Illinois. What is it like to not only go through that experience, but then reflect on playing with a guy like Johnny Damon at the age of 19, where, I mean, obviously you're about the same age, but, um, you know, reflecting on how good he was at that time, and could you tell at that time that he was going to be a special talent? Oh, there's no doubt. Yeah. Playing with, with Johnny, um, through the system in the minor leagues, he was the year before me in the draft. So he was a 92 draft and, um, we were loaded with talent over there at that time, um, with guys coming up through the system, you know, we had some good pitching and, uh, good position players, Mike Sweeney, uh, Sal Fasano, all these guys came up, um, through the Royal system. And then right behind us was, you know, the 
Carlos Beltran, and and we made a big trade for Jermaine Dye when mm-hmm. uh, after he had come up with the Braves. So Jim Jim Pixley a was a big talent. prospect too. Yeah, you know, it, it, at one point our outfield in Kansas City was was uh, Carlos Beltran, Johnny Damon, and Jermaine Dye. So I mean, I, I think. Uh, if any manager would take those three in your outfield, if you kept them all together for about six years, but it's tough to do, you know, especially in a smaller market like Kansas city was, they ended up losing um, those guys to, to trade and free agency. Now the next year you played with Mike Sweeney at, um, let me make sure I get the right level here. You were back in Rockford. So same kind of deal there. I mean, Sweeney obviously became, I mean, I don't know if you'd call him maybe like the Paul Canerco to Chicago, what, uh, what Paul Canerco was to Chicago, he kind of was to Kansas City. What was your experience like playing with him? Because obviously growing up a Twins fan, uh, not only did I see you begin your career with Kansas City, but I saw an awful lot of, of Mike Sweeney back in the late 90s and, and early 2000s. You know, Mike and I, um, uh, probably one of my my longest friends in baseball, and, and we came up together, we roomed together My our first year in the big leagues. Um, we bought houses right next to each other in Kansas city. Uh, and so we were neighbors, um, and still friends to this day. We still communicate. And, um, he was such a great guy. Obviously, you know, the stories. he's one of the nicest guys in baseball that you'll ever meet. And he's still that way to this day. And he was such an ambassador and kind of a, a you know, in that area, he was the first superstar that that kind of stuck around there for a long time in Kansas City you know he signed a long-term deal and mm-hmm. was basically a career guy there pretty good kind of act to follow George Brett as far as you know the galvanizing force in Kansas City you know maybe not the same caliber of player but we saw with Alex Gordon coming up how difficult those shoes can be to fill and it felt like Sweeney did a really good job of not only playing well but just being good in the community and being good in the clubhouse as well he did, you know, all those things you do, you do off the field and the way you treat people and the way you handle the media and everything else just, you know, makes it that much easier on you when things don't go right. Um, and, and Mike was able to always do that. So the next year, 95, you jump up again. And, uh, this time you're in Wilmington, high A and a, a guy that I wanted to ask you about, um, that maybe didn't really blow up, but I, I thought was pretty talented was Jose Rosado. What do you remember about playing with him? Because I feel like he, um, you know, he's a pretty good pitcher, just never really uh, got his legs under him in the big leagues. No, you know, he came up when he was really young, and uh, he was really good. And it's a shame. He, he, he had some injuries along along the way once he got to the big leagues, and, and he never recovered. And, and he definitely could have, in my opinion, been a long-time quality pitcher at the major league level because he, he did it with ease and, and – he wasn't afraid to pitch in the big leagues. I mean, I think he was probably only um, 21 or so the first time they brought him up, and he didn't have a problem. You know, he was up there competing. Uh, so it, it it's too bad that injuries kind of shelved him and, and he wasn't able to be the guy that we all thought he would be. You guys were kind of in the midst of the, the lull that Kansas City had. What was it like to be in Kansas City as a baseball city at that time? Because obviously – you know, the team was good in the mid-80s and then just kind of took a dip. You know, David Cohn's gone, all those kind of guys that were there. Um, you know, what was it like to to live in Kansas City and play in Kansas City in front of those fans? You know, the beauty is, is when you're a young guy, you, that, that stuff doesn't really um, affect you that much. It's, it's like you're more worried about competing at the big league level for the first time, being a big leaguer, staying in the big leagues, all those things. So 
So where we were at as an organization or a team didn't really affect um, affect you that much as it would if, if you're an older veteran player that's maybe looking to be on a team that's going to compete. Um, we had we had a really good group of veteran guys there with Jeff Montgomery and Kevin Apier mm-hmm. and Tim Belcher and all those guys that were such great influences on me uh, when I first came to the big leagues that they helped me a lot and, and in, in the future of my career. Now, a couple times in a row, uh, let's see if I get the years correct here. After 1995 and 1996, you made Baseball America's top 100 prospects. And we can we can look back. Andrew Jones was the number one prospect the first year around. I had the second one up here and uh, let's see if I can get it again. But we're, we're, I mean, we're talking about some of the biggest prospects in baseball. Andrew Jones was uh, one of those years. I don't have the other one with me. But when, when you're in the minors, are you aware of those kind of publication things, even back then when maybe prospects weren't at the forefront of what fans discussed? I think, you know, uh, Moneyball and, and the A's in 2003, 2004, that era, is when prospects became more of a, a thing. But were you guys aware of how you were viewed or how you were uh, evaluated by those publications at that time? Yeah, we were aware. I think you all, you know, you get excited whenever you, I, I can remember uh, one of those off seasons when some of those publications came out, you know, going and, and getting a copy of it to actually see it for yourself. It's a lot, lot different, obviously, than when everything circulates now on, on the internet and on Twitter and Instagram and everything else. It's, it's there before you can even go out and pick anything up in person anyway. So mm-hmm. I, I think it, we definitely followed it and, and thought it was cool to, to be a part of, you know, what, you know, the top hundred prospects or anything else, any other publication that comes out. Now you made it up to the big leagues in, uh, in 1997. What was the debut like for you? And I know you told me off the air, you debuted at the Metrodome and actually had a, a very good start. You went, I think it was eight innings, uh, four hits, no earned runs. And you got the W. I mean, at 22, you got to be kind of feeling on, on top of the world at that point. Don't you? Uh, you do. Well, yeah, that was, it was a great day. I was extremely nervous as anybody is when they go out and make their big league debut. And, um, a, a funny story from that is, is, is like you said, you can't have a much better day than I did. And I, I remember getting back on the bus, uh, when we were going to catch our flight out of there and, and Bob Boone, who was my manager, uh, at the time stopped me and I had a big smile on my face and he, he said, wipe that smile off your face. It's not that easy. <laughs> so he, <laughs> You know, it, 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 he was just giving me a hard time, of course. But, it, but yeah, I mean, you, you dream about that moment for so long and to have it go out and, and go the way it did, I, I always look back on that and think, think how lucky I am that, that the first one went the, as well as it did. So what kind of pitcher would you say you were? I mean, nowadays, fan graphs kind of tells us if guys get grounders, if they could fly balls, velocity, whether they're a slider guy, you know, a sinker slider guy, a fastball, curveball, changeup guy. What kind of pitcher did you, or would you say, if you were to do a scouting report of what you were like coming up, how would that read? I was a fastball changeup guy. I threw a lot of fastballs. Curveball was probably my third pitch um, when I was young. And then as I got older, my breaking ball developed into being better. And, and I developed a little bit of a slider later in my career. But I was always a fastball pitcher, and I was and I was a fly ball guy for the most part. Um hopefully had low walk totals and, mm-hmm. and uh, threw a lot of four seam fastballs. I really didn't throw a two seamer hardly ever. Um, so yeah, I just, I, you know, relied on trying to command the fastball on both sides up under the hands and, and 
all the different quadrants of the zone. And, and then, like I said, I was kind of change up and curveball went back and forth. But as I got older, I was a better breaking ball guy. And so you basically spent the bulk of the season in the big leagues, um, you know, very briefly, you know, one game in Omaha, but 170 innings in your first season, eight innings in your first start. It feels like guys now when they come up, they're handled with kid gloves a little bit more, especially a prospect of that level, you know, top hundred prospect. Um, when you look back on it now, do you think, man, it's it's kind of crazy? I probably wouldn't have been handled the same way if I came up now in terms of how long they would have let you go and that sort of thing. Well, no, they look at now. I think you look at that maybe 170, 180 inning mark is is kind of become the new 200 inning mark, um, and especially you know from for, for the younger guys, um, you know, I I, I think the maybe the biggest difference and especially I, you know, I did three years as a pitching coach in the Cal league with the Padres. And I think the biggest difference is, um, they, you, you don't see guys go a hundred, 105, 110 pitches, start after start after start. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and back when we did that, we did, we, we usually kind of went somewhere up near that pitch limit almost every start. Uh, and, and now it's different, you know, it's like, okay, well, he had a, he had a long start, the one before let's back him off this one. And, yeah, they're, they're, but look, it's a huge investment. So you have to make sure health is the most important part. Nobody does an organization any good if they're hurt. So eventually you struggled that year. I mean, if we're just being honest, I mean, you had a 5.5 ERA. So there were ebbs and flows as far as success. Um, how did you mentally handle that? Obviously, Bob Boone as a manager is going to be able to stem some of the tide there because he's seen everything or had seen everything that baseball had to offer. But you know, was it difficult the first time around to, you know, feel like you belonged? Cause, cause really the, you did, they didn't send you back for any extended period of time. Uh, you know, wh- wh- how did you handle failure in the big leagues for the first time? It's extremely hard it's, and it's all mental. And you, you know, you learn, you learn that as you get older and, and no matter how much you try and figure that out as a young guy, sometimes it's just all the experience and, and going through that. And, you know, I had, I had definitely hard times. I had ups and downs and, and, uh, you know, after basically two full years in the big leagues, I ended up spending almost a full season back in Omaha in 1999. So, it's, right. uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a grind and, and that, that tells a lot about, uh, guys, because there's a lot of guys that go through that exact same situation and maybe they don't end up coming back and seeing the big leagues too much after that. And I, I was able to kind of, kind of figure it out. And, and that was a big part turning point in my career. And as, as far as getting myself on track and learning. So I, I, it was all beneficial. All those experiences helped me a lot. So going back, let, let's focus on 1990 for just 1999 for just a second. I mean, you led Omaha with 20 starts and, you know, after two years of big league experience, 300 plus innings in the big leagues, uh, would you call it a reality check? Would you call it a rude awakening or would you call it necessary? I mean, what would you term that season at Omaha as? Because, I mean, nobody wants to do that, but at some point, you know, maybe it made you better. Maybe it made you bitter. <laughs> I mean, bitter or better. It's it's the difference of one letter, but a, a huge difference in words. Um, you know, what did that do for you for the future, spending 1999 in Omaha? I would say it was all those things you mentioned. It definitely um, taught me that I needed to concentrate on making myself better and improving my game. And, and basically nobody else affected 
that it, it was it was all on me and you know a lot of times when you as a as a player you you start spending those times back in the minor leagues or you get sent down and you always think it's about somebody else or somebody else took my spot or I'm doing better than this guy I should get called up at, at the end of the day nobody around you affects what happens in your career if you're good enough you're going to get up there and you're going to perform and if not, there's 29 other teams out there, and that's ended ended up what you know happened for me is there was another team out there at the end of that year that took me, and and it kind of catapulted me into uh, the start of my my longer career. Yeah, and so I want to ask you about '98 for just a second. You had a few teammates I'd like to ask you about. Obviously, everybody knew Carlos Beltran was a stud at that point, but for a Twins angle, you played with Shane Mack and Scott Leyes. Uh, do you remember anything specifically about those guys? Because Leas, I know, because he still lives in the Twin Cities area, but Shane Max, the end of his career, kind of is shrouded in mystery for me. I know with the strike, I think he went over and played in Japan, but to me, he just kind of fell off the map, even though he was he was still a pretty good hitter. Yeah, those guys were awesome. I, I loved being around them. That, I, I felt so, um, I, I was so appreciative to have played with a bunch of those veteran guys in Kansas City, you know, Dean Palmer, Hal Morris, mm-hmm. uh, Jose Offerman. I mean, we had all these great veteran guys that came through. Mike McFarland behind the plate uh, was a was a huge influence on me. It, and uh, Shane Mack and Leas were were awesome too. You know, I, I think um, those guys were in that transition period. You know, where you you end up going to a small market team, um, and and you know you're you're on a one year deal or whatever, and and that's just kind of how baseball worked at that time keep and, keeping the dream you know, alive the, the, yeah the joe the the journeyman uh uh spot and and uh but they're they're such good guys and great to be around so you you played at kaufman stadium obviously very regularly and then you said you went back here a couple of years ago um how would you say that your your feelings for that stadium have evolved over time because obviously the stadium has changed a fair amount, not only since it opened, but especially in the last few years. It, it is one of the more beautiful stadiums. It's it's situated in a cool area with the uh, the highway out beyond the fence and all that stuff, and it's kind of in a fun little complex with, with Arrowhead Stadium or whatever they're calling it these days. Um, I just like the layout. I like the area. I think it's really well executed. But as a player, what was that place like to play? I know it's really warm in August and, and September, but I have to feel like it was a pretty good place to play. It was beautiful. It was beautiful before they did all the renovations to it when I was there. And when I went back for the World Series uh, in 2015, that was the first time I'd been back there in 16 years. So all all my time that I spent in the National League after being traded away from there, I never went back there in interleague play, which is kind of just a fluke, you know, that that happened. Yeah, but, for sure. Um, so it, it was really cool to go back and and see that stadium and, and yeah, obviously having it across the street from, from uh chiefs, you know, from, from Arrowhead. And, and I mean, it's, it's an amazing place and it's great, great sports town. I mean, it's so cool to see them thrive, you know, winning a world series, going to back to back world series. And then, mm-hmm. and then seeing the, what the chiefs did this year, it's such a great sports town. Is part of your heart there for sports like rooting. I mean, maybe, maybe you're a Seahawks fan or something like that, but is still part of you, like, have that fondness for Kansas City where, yeah, Patrick Mahomes is kind of cool. Uh, you played with his dad with the Mets, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. And so you no, got to probably I, like I rooted, him. 
I've kind of always um, followed the Chiefs and, and rooted for the Chiefs because I used to go to Chiefs games when I was when I was there, living mm-hmm. there in the off season. Um, but yeah, really cool to see uh, Pat Junior do what he did this year, and and I was a uh, and still am friends with his dad, and, mm-hmm. and I remember Pat Junior when he's four or five years old running around our <laughs> clubhouse in New York. So yeah, um, to see what he did this year was awesome, and, and uh, it couldn't happen to a better better family and and uh, i'm excited for him and maybe this doesn't apply to you as much but the parking situation at kaufman is um is unbelievable i think that's just such a great concept because here in the twin cities it's park wherever you can and you got to hoof it to the stadium whereas you know it was pouring rain after one of the games i covered in kansas city last year and it was a quick sprint to my car but 10 12 seconds since pouring rain as opposed to a couple times in minneapolis it was two or three four or five minutes um, I definitely, I definitely appreciate the parking situation there. Yeah, it's a great, great <laughs> uh, location, and they're professional tailgaters there. I don't know if there's anybody better in the country at tailgating than they they are. So, you kind of ran the gamut of emotions in '99. You're in, you're with Kansas City. You're in the organization. You spend most of the year in Omaha. You get traded to the Mets, or the Mets pick you up. You go from Kansas City, which is again in that lull, um, Omaha, which you know you certainly don't want to be in the minor leagues. And then the Mets, who win the division that year, and then you know they're they're going pretty good. What what is that like for a young player who's experiencing success, whether it's directly or indirectly, for the first time? Um, you know, and and just being kind of thrust into that spotlight as wow, this team's good, and I uh, I just showed up. Well, it's a shock. I mean, the first the first. Um the, the day that I got traded, I was actually supposed to start the second game of a doubleheader in Kansas City, and they called me that morning, and I got traded, and I went and joined the Mets in Colorado. And, yeah, to go from the clubhouse I was in to the Mets clubhouse that was extremely loaded with talent and mm-hmm. veterans and everything else, um, it, was, it, was a, it was a shock for me. And it was one of the greatest experiences I've had is, you know, I, I really was there for – three weeks leading up to the playoffs. I only pitched one inning. I was not eligible for the playoffs because they got traded after September 1st, but mm-hmm. um, to kind of watch them go down that, that stretch run um, to get into the playoffs and see the one game playoff in Cincinnati and everything was, it, it was such a cool experience for me. And I wouldn't trade that for the world. Now, and for my money, and I think probably for yours too, 2000 was your best year in the big leagues. You went from spending an entire year in, in the minors, I almost said Rochester, which is the Twins AAA affiliate now, uh, Omaha, to 31, uh, 31 appearances, 30 starts, almost 200 innings. I mean, really putting yourself on the radar at 25, that has to kind of feel like um, a life a lifesaver has been thrown to you or you have found a, a second chance in the big leagues. How, how did you feel or how would you characterize that season for you? That was kind of a... a- the whole year was kind of like a dream season really starting, you know, in spring training battling just to make the team make us, uh, have a position in the rotation. I, I left spring training as the fifth starter. Um, and I don't think I made my first start of the year until about three weeks into the season. My first no. start got snowed out. Um, and I just kind of waited in the bullpen eventually started and then, yeah, had a, had a solid, solid year. And then we had such a great team and, got into the playoffs and, and ended up in the world series. So that, that whole year just kind of came together uh, for me personally, but, but also we had a, a great team and a great group of guys. I, I only regret is that we didn't win the whole thing. And, you know, we ran up against a tough team with the Yankees and, and uh, 
that series that year. No, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with IMDB, the website, which is like movies and everything, but they list sure, you. Sure, yeah, I know that very well. They list you as appearing as yourself in the 2000 National League Division Series. So, hey, film credit for being yourself. How, how's that? I like that. That's good. Yeah, usually only get usually only get that if you do like a talk show or something. So I got it for another way. Well, I'm just impressed you weren't using a stunt double by this point because I mean you have a big year like that in New York City, and you know that's the city where dreams are are made of. You know, so I thought, wow, he uh, appeared as himself in the division series. That's uh, that's impressive. <laughs> did you like good. Did you like living in New York City? Uh, I did. We lived in, we lived up in Connecticut. So we lived a little bit North, uh, outside the city and, sure. and, uh, commute, commuted in to, to Shea every day. But yeah, I loved it there. That's such a fun place. We love to go back. We actually went back, um, my family, uh, this year, right after Thanksgiving and spent a little time in New York city. I, I love going there. Mm-hmm. I really want my, uh, to take my kids back now and, and take them to uh city field and take them to Yankee stadium. So we'll probably try and do that in the next year or so. How far of a commute is that? That has to be, I mean, it's probably more about minutes than miles. Oh, from, uh, from coming from Connecticut. Yeah. It's like 40 minutes. Oh, it could be worse. I, we, so what happened was I went to Shea stadium and it was like 2006. So I saw a young Jose Reyes and I saw Barry Bonds kind of on his last legs, but we went from LaGuardia there and that, you know, that's not so bad, but yeah, just getting around, it seems like it could be very, very difficult if you do it at the wrong time of day. So, um, you know, there's no question about that. So you must have had some kind of system worked out where you had a route or something that got you to and from fairly quickly. Yeah, it was just the regular, uh, regular route every day. It was, and you know, when you when you commute as a player, you're usually kind of coming into work around lunch hour mm-hmm. and, and going home way after everybody's done with work. So we didn't deal with too much traffic. Now, you were teammates with Daryl Hamilton there, and he's since passed away, but he was on MLB Network, was a, a fairly popular personality. Uh, you know, how do you reflect on him and knowing him and obviously the, the tragedy that is the end of his life? Great guy. Such a sad, you know, thing to see him pass away at, at a young age. And um, he was a vibrant personality and great teammate and loved being around him. And I, I, I have nothing but great memories of him and uh unfortunately he's gone too soon now now that's the only season you pitched in the postseason and i gotta ask i mean you're 25 at this point to know that you would pitch in the big leagues in some form or fashion for another decade but never go back to the playoffs was that something that would have surprised you if you would have found out you know when you guys were eliminated and you watched the yankees win the world series that year or is it just kind of you realize the the importance of making it and there's nothing guaranteed the next year that you're going to get back there or even get close. No, I think I knew that at the time that how hard it is to get there. And, and I never took for granted that, that we got there and got as far as we did. And yeah, I, I felt like it was going to be a challenge to get back there at some point in the rest of my career. We made a nice run in Chicago, um, in Oh four and just came up a little short and, mm-hmm. Uh, the Rocky, the Rockies team I was on in in uh, '09 ended up making the playoffs after I was gone. But you know, the, I I think you can you can only be appreciate uh, appreciative of what you have, and and the fact that I got there at a young age and got to go all the way to the series was was pretty special. Now you spent 2001 in New York with the Mets. That was your last year with the Mets, and obviously uh, anybody who knows knows 9/11 was then. Um, you know what what was the vibe like being 
in that city, whether it was playing there, commuting through there, uh, living near there at that time, and, and you know, having the city kind of rally around you guys, you know, and having obviously Yankees and Mets both in the city, you know, what, what was that vibe like now that you reflect on it almost 20 years ago? Well, it was extremely difficult being there at that time um, and and being surrounded by, you know, the, the tragedy and the chaos and the sadness that, that went on in that city. Um, as time went on and we came back and we were kind of one of the one of the things that helped revive, you know, people's lives and, and feel some, some sense of happiness again after, after all the tragedy. I think that was definitely fun to be a part of, but yeah, you know, when I look back on it, it's still, I still get choked up when I watch any of the shows that show, you know, us coming out and the, the first game back at Shea stadium and any, any of that stuff is there's a lot of emotion to it. Now, with your time in the Mets, uh, or your time with the Mets, rather, you had Ray Ordonez at shortstop. He wasn't in the business of winning gold gloves anymore, but did he do uh, any big favors for you defensively that you can recall? Uh, you know, not not like one specific play off the top of my head. I just know he, he was – there was any nobody probably better than him at the time at shortstop, man. He was fun to watch, and uh, – you know, I got to be with him a little bit later on in Chicago. He came to, uh, oh, yeah. to the Cubs as well. Yeah, yeah, he was he was so fun to watch that that infield with Edgardo Alfonso and you have Robin Ventura at third and Todd Zeal was great at first. I mm-hmm. mean, we were, we were loaded with defensively with that club. That team was actually kind of a fun team that 2001 bunch. Rick Reed uh, was traded to the Twins that year for Matt Lawton, so you get to play with Matt Lawton, a guy who Twins fans, especially listening to this, are very familiar with. Um, kind of an interesting trade, but also uh, Kevin Apier, Al Leiter, Steve Traxel. I mean, not necessarily. I mean, Apier and Leiter, obviously much more higher profile starters. But even Traxel pitched, you know, for a very long time at a very solid level. And, and Rick Reed was kind of that guy who could be anywhere from a number three starter to a number five starter. I mean, you guys, one through five, were pretty sturdy. What was that group of guys like? Because, I mean, you weren't letting too many kids into your midst. I think uh, <laughs> Dicky Gonzalez, whose name is completely new to me, made a few starts. And also Bruce Chen, who, uh, you know, just in the last couple of years retired. But, you know, it was mostly you guys until Rick Reed got traded in, in July. Yeah, it was a veteran staff. And, and you know, the same with the year before, you know, with Hampton Leiter, uh, Bobby Jones, and mm-hmm. Rick Reed. I mean, we everybody, uh, for the most part, you know, I was the youngest guy. and But uh, everybody went to the post and made their starts. And, and you know, if you... If, if, if that formula kind of puts itself together on, on any current team, if you see a, uh, a staff that goes out and they have their guys make 25 to 32 starts, all five of them, they usually do pretty well. They usually have a pretty successful season. And the bullpen in 2001 was a, a fun bunch of names. I mean, Armando Benitez was, uh, he was an interesting cat to watch because I, I felt like it was a little bit white knuckled in the ninth inning. John Franco, one of the greatest late inning relievers that I can remember. But then Turk Wendell, was he nuts still when you guys played with him? Oh, he had his quirks, but he was a great guy, great teammate. He, I mean, you know, a lot of the stuff you saw from afar or on TV was just his superstitious stuff that he loved doing. But Black licorice that, and everything? Tremendous guy, yeah. He was great. I think I saw he would eat black licorice between innings and then brush his teeth and do all kinds of fun stuff. He had a pretty nice year in the bullpen, too, and I think when uh, – when things are going well, you kind of embrace those quirks, and when things are going poorly, it's like, oh, man, he's at it again. Yeah, exactly. 
But it was a good bunch of guys to hand leads to, I would have to imagine. I mean, again, John Franco at this point in his age 40 season, but had been good for so long. Um, nice to know those guys have your back, I would imagine. They were great. The bullpens were great there. And uh, watching Johnny Franco and Armando, you know, finish games out. And we had Turk, we had Dennis Cook, Rick White. We had a, we had a, a good crew down there. Now, CJ Nitkowski was there for a little bit. Did you get to know him at all? Yeah, yeah. I still uh, keep in contact with CJ. And, um, you know, that he he was kind of a lefty that, that, you know, unfortunately some places he didn't, I don't think, got enough of an opportunity to really show how good he was because he was great left on left. He could really get left-handers out. Now, you were flipped to Milwaukee after that season in a three-team trade. You go from Kansas City to New York to Milwaukee. I mean, you have to feel like you're coming full circle in terms of market size, right? Yeah, Milwaukee's a you know kind of a similar market to Kansas City is the way I viewed it. Um, but great place and great stadium, and they were very very good to me when I got traded over there. That was the first time I got to sign a contract for more than a year. Yeah, and, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed being there. You know, the, the the second year I was there, I had a really rough time, and and they still still treated me very well and I, I definitely enjoyed my time in Milwaukee. Uh, I got to ask you about Ben Sheets. Obviously one of the, and I, I, my producer over here is nodding in agreement. One of the best young pitchers in baseball at that time. Um, you know, a shame how his career ended, but what was it like to be teammates with a guy like that? You know, a young stud. I mean, are you at that point in your career where you're kind of mentoring or at 27, or are you still kind of one of the younger guys? No, I, I didn't feel like I was mentoring him at all. I, he, he, he kind of had it figured out and he, yeah. he was a, had great work ethic and, and, and everything. He was a total package. I, I love Ben. Um, he's another guy I still keep in contact with. And, mm-hmm. you know, he was, he was so fun to watch because he was dominant with, you know, um, with high fastballs and a nasty breaking ball. He was, he was fun to watch. And him and I always joke around. We felt like we had the uh, Cy Young type seasons in, in 2002, because I think we lost like 106 games as a team, but both <laughs> of both him and I started, you know, made, made all our starts and, and pitched 200 plus innings. And, and we felt like we had a real good years. When you played for Ned Yost there before he was kind of on the radar as a manager, what was that like? Yeah, Ned's great. He was, I mean, you could see how he ended up being a, a long time. That was his first year as a manager of the year I had him. So mm-hmm. you could see right away, you know, just the way he interacted with his team and, and motivationally and, and, you know, he had the respect of everybody in the clubhouse and right away as a, as a young manager, and you can see how that played out over time. He's, he's been such a successful manager, and I, I really love playing for Ned. Now, we all know pitcher record can be deceptive. You were 11 and 28 over those two years, but I really want to focus on that second year, 1 and 12, but I did read a story I was kind of digging, and they said that your 2003 was one of the, one of the most exceptionally unlucky seasons, and Basically, and maybe you're not aware of it. Obviously, ERA is the thing. There's a stat called FIP, which basically evens out the luck part of pitching, and says that while yeah. while your ERA was six four two, your ERA should have been three eight seven. Did you feel exceptionally unlucky with how things played out for you that year in in a pitcher's mindset? I did. You know, I really felt like I really felt like nothing could go right that year, and mm-hmm. then that starts to build on you mentally, and and the next thing you know, you're you, you end up going out there waiting for something bad to happen rather than going out there and making something good happen. And, and I definitely got into that rut. It was, it was a lot of mental stuff. Cause my, my, um, 
you know, I was healthy. My stuff was there, um, but it just didn't go right. And it's funny you, you mentioned that stat. I, I think somebody else has thrown that out to me before that that's one of the biggest differentials they've seen in a long time on a whole season like that. Maybe and, ever. And yeah. It's just, yeah. And it did, you know, it, but who knows? Sometimes it's a blessing in disguise because the next year I came back and had a really good season in Chicago. Yeah. And so transitioning from there to Chicago, um, obviously Wrigley, again, a, a cathedral to play in, you know, the, the first time you played there, whether it was as a cub or as a visitor, I mean, what did it like, what was it like to visit? And then what was it like to play there as home? Really cool as a visitor. I went there the first time in interleague play, uh, the first year of interleague play in 1997, mm, yeah. uh, I went there. Um, it, special place, obviously that's some, uh, place as a kid you just dream about going to and especially getting the pitch there. And then, uh, as a home guy, I had so much fun in Chicago, just the city's great. The fans are incredible. And I was obviously there at a good time when they had just come off that, that NLCS run in 2003. And I joined them in 04 and we, we were loaded. We had a quite a team. We should have made the playoffs that year, in my opinion. Now you kind of vacillated between starter and reliever. Uh, what was that like for you to to switch those roles? I know in the last year in Milwaukee they made you work a little bit out of the bullpen. I think it was thirteen appearances. But uh, did you have to change much up, or was it just kind of this is who I am and I'm going to be me going to the bullpen when you had to do that? Yeah, you know I didn't really change anything up. I I I, I embraced it because I felt like the ability to do both was just going to make me more valuable down the stretch in my career. And, and it was going to keep me around longer. And, and it did, you know, it ended up being a great position for me. And, you know, Dusty Baker had all the confidence in the world in me doing both. And he he had no problem shifting me back and forth. And, and I didn't have a problem with it either. So you missed 07 with a blood clot. And I read in places that it was a very, very severe thing. How did that crop up? What did it feel like? And, and, you know, what was that recovery process like? Well, the short story is I was having chest pain coming off the road trip um, and, you know, ended up in the ER at Northwestern. And finally, through all their testing and everything on a CT scan, they found I had a pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot in in my lung. And, uh, yes, they're definitely very dangerous life-threatening i mean it could have could have gone worse fortunately we found it in time to um to get it thinned out uh i missed the rest of that season and all of 07 and then uh, i was on blood thinners for a year and once the doctor released me from the blood thinners i decided to make a comeback and, and that's how i ended up uh signing with san diego uh with the help of greg maddox and bud black um <laughs> And those guys over in San Diego at the time, they they kind of went out and, and offered me a deal to say, hey, if he's healthy, let's bring him into camp. So it worked out well. Yeah, just a little influence between those two guys in the in the major leagues. <laughs> um, what, what did it mean to you to get back on the mound that first time? Uh, I'm talking about in a game. Obviously, you throw live BP, you throw bullpens, you throw whatever, spring training, whatever. But to get back on the mound in a big league game, um, was it like your debut again? Was it like a relief? Uh, you know, take us through it, that. Yeah, it was it was really cool. Um, and you know, Bud Buddy Black um, knew my story very well, and and uh, and it was in spring training, and and he made a pitching change and brought me into the game in a spring training game, and and to me, it felt like I was coming into a 
a playoff game in front of 50,000 people. Cause I hadn't been on the mound in a year and a half. And, and, uh, you know, right, right when I came in he handed me the ball and said, welcome back. So it was, it was a pretty cool, uh, special day. And, and, uh, you know, San Diego is such a great place. I, I wish I would have had uh, the opportunity to play there longer than I did. Now you played with Khalil Green, a guy who started off hot and then his career kind of fizzled out. I believe it was, uh, you know, some mental health stuff. Uh, what kind of guy was he? Because I think he was, one of the more intriguing players of that team. Great guy, great teammate, hard worker. Um, you know, unfortunately he just dealt with some, some mental stuff, some anxiety and, and, uh, you know, I think probably a lot of fear of failure, Mm -hmm. um, which, which a lot of guys go through. Um, and it's too bad because he is such a talent, you know, he made it, made it look easy. He was a gold glove type defender with pop, um, from the right side. So, too bad he didn't get to play longer than he did. Now, you played with a young Jake Peavy. You played with a young Ben Sheets. Who had better stuff? Wow. That's, I mean, <laughs> I always thought they were very similar. Neck neck. Yeah, I always thought they were very you know, similar. Gonna, yeah, you're going to trade one unhittable slider for one unhittable curveball. Right. Other than that, they're pretty pretty similar. I would say Peavy was probably a, a guy that pitched lower in the zone more than, than Sheeter did. Sheeter was, you know, really good at. Uh, the high fastball and with a breaking ball off of that. But yeah, they're both incredible. Yeah. She'd said the high cheese, pardon the uh, pun, but um, uh, Maddox and Hoffman on that team too. I mean, even though you only spent a shade under 20 innings there, that's gotta be an amazing group to be in the midst of. Um, I had the other, I had a few other names, but yeah, just a, a pretty good clubhouse there in that, that uh, Padres team that year. Wouldn't you say? Oh, it was awesome. That spring training was so much fun. I mean, it was, it was, honestly one of the 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 best experience i've had in in camp and and you know i was fighting for a job so Mm -hmm. it wasn't like i was in there with a with a guaranteed spot so i was working to just make the team but we had a blast and you know i got to i was lucky enough to work with hoffy um all those years in in san diego um as a pitching coach he was around and and we spent a lot of time together so yeah it, it, it was an honor to be teammates with those guys and and you know they're they're such good examples and role models and you know aside from obviously what they did on the field and being hall of famers they're just great guys was mark marillo the bullpen catcher at that time yes he was there and you, then, got, you um, got to know stumpy then yeah. yep yep stumpy was there and um you know obviously uh ack uh daryl ackerfeld was there who's mm-hmm. passed away one of the one of the great yep. bullpen guys and and i was fortunate enough to have darren balsley the current pitching coach uh, in san diego he was the pitching coach there as well and I, I love him he's one of my favorites of all time and he does such a great job and uh with with the guys in san diego and that's why he's still there now did this plant the seed for you to coach in the future in the organization or was that a completely unrelated thing uh you know i i always thought that i wanted to be involved in in some capacity um but the the really what happened was um mark loretta and mark Pryor and uh, Hoffy, those guys were all working in the front office in San Diego. And, um, when Mark Pryor got hired as the pitching coordinator, then he reached out to me along with those guys and asked if I was interested in, in coming down to interview for a pitching coach job. And I said, sure. So <laughs> I ended up going down and interviewing and they gave me the Lake Elsinore job. I did that for three years and I absolutely loved it. I had a blast being around all those up and coming kids, 
quite a few who are in the big leagues now, you know, with Lucchese and Lauer and Wingenter mm-hmm. and yep. all these great young pitchers they have coming up. Um, my only decision to leave it was because I wanted to be around my family more and my kids are at the age that I needed to be home more. And, and, and it was a tough decision because I really enjoyed doing it. Now, you end up getting picked up by Colorado later that year in 2008. Uh, I think you got designated by the Padres and then landed with Colorado and, and put together a pretty nice run. What was the situation around getting picked up by Colorado? And, you know, what was your initial thought of, you know, the stigma of pitching at, at that elevation? And were you just like, you know what, I've been in the big leagues for a decade, bring it on? Yeah, you know, it didn't bother me. I, I was looking at the opportunity. Colorado was a team that was another team that was interested in me when I was making my comeback. And so that we kind of already had a little bit of a relationship established. And, and as soon as I was designated by San Diego, that was the first team that contacted me. And, and uh, I got an opportunity over there and, and loved it. You know, I, I would have loved staying there longer than, than I got the opportunity to as well. It's a great place to play and beautiful stadium and, and facility. Um, and then, you know, at the end, when I was uh, designated by them the following year, it just, it, it kind of was the decision of, do I want to kick around in AAA and try and get a call up back and forth? You know, at mm-hmm. that point I had had, you know, all my, all my service time in or I was, had the ability to retire. And, and I just made that decision that that was enough. How did you change as a pitcher after the blood clot? Did, did it affect you at all pitching wise or was it more of a health thing? No, it was just a health thing. It was um, just kind of, you know, be aware of those symptoms. And uh, fortunately, I've gone, you know, what are we, 13 years later, and I haven't mm-hmm. haven't had any issues. And um, But, yeah, you just you, you kind of have to be aware that if you're prone to getting a blood clot, especially if one shoots into your lung, you have, you, it, it's, a, it's a dangerous situation. But it didn't affect pitching at all. I came back and was fine. What was it like playing with a, a baby Troy Tulowitzki? Because, I mean, man one of the best players in, in the game back then, in addition to Todd Helton, Matt Holliday, was was a young Troy Tulowitzki. Yeah, they were fun to watch, those guys. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see him with the Yankees this year. I, right. think he's, I think he's on a mission. I think he's going to be healthy, and I think he's going to help that club a lot. So he's going to be fun to watch. Now, what did you like about teaching the game? Uh, you know, at uh, Lake Elsinore, high A, you know, you're, you're – teaching guys who are ways from the big leagues. And I'm sure that you'd teach differently in double A AA and triple A, but what was it about that level, about that location and about that spot that made you enjoy teaching the game like you did? I think I really enjoyed um, being able to sit down and, and have conversations with those kids um, from a, from a, a real point of view and, and straight shoot with them about, what they have in front of them and what they need to work on and, and everything. I, I think I was a little different um, in that respect that I really spent a lot of time getting, getting to know the, the players and, and uh, understanding where they're coming from and what they want to do with their career and just kind of help them along the way with my experiences. Now, when you pitched, it wasn't a big strikeout game. I mean, you had some nice years, 7.8 strikeouts per nine in 2001 was you know, a fairly good number, but now guys are striking out a batter per inning or, or more. How would you be different today, do you think, if you debuted just in the last few years and you were right in your prime right now? How do you think you would approach things differently or how do you think you would project differently in today's game? Well, I think I would I would probably take in 
a little more of the information that's available. I mean, there wasn't, I don't want to say there wasn't a lot of information available because there was, but it's, it's just different now. I think, I think, um, pitching has changed in a sense that we were ingrained to pitch down in the zone all the time. Now you can, you know, we, we've seen that pitching up in the zone is very effective, um, especially the type of pitcher I was. I, I would say that would probably be my main difference. Is I, I, I'm sure I'd pitch up in the zone maybe even a little bit more than I did um, when I was pitching. Now, I want to ask you, too, about the state of the game now. It's obviously, you know, free agency's a mess, and people are upset about how long games take and how much it costs to go to games. I mean, how do you, you know, what do you like and dislike about the current state of the game? Well, yeah, the the price of going to a game, unfortunately, is only getting worse. Um, that 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 part I don't like. I, I think it would be nice for a family of four to have an affordable price to go out and mm-hmm. watch a ball game and eat while they're there and everything else. Everything is really expensive. Um, as far as the length of the games, I kind of look at it as people who aren't really baseball fans are the ones that are complaining about that in the first place. It seems like I, right. I don't think too many people are going to that are true baseball fans are going to stop watching baseball or stop going to games because the game's going to be eight or 10 minutes longer or shorter. That, that's my opinion. So, I agree with that. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with it. I, I think, um, I think the biggest change is just the guys are bigger, stronger, faster, and the athletes are better overall than, than they ever have been. Um, I think pitching revolves around velocity and stuff more than it ever has. I don't, I don't know how many guys we're going to see that are a Greg Maddox type, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that in today's current game that we used to, and, and, and that part of it sucks to me. I, I think I, I always love listening to John Schmoltz talk when he talks on MLB network, because, you know, he harps on that point a lot. And I think it's very true. I, I think sometimes we lose sight of what a good pitcher really is just because we're so focused on stuff and velocity now. What do you think of reliever usage? I, I think it's, I, I, I like the way they use, I, I like making multiple moves. I like playing matchups. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't have a problem with it. I, I think that, and, and, and I'm, I'm a firm believer in the, your setup guy and your closer have a pretty specific role and you should use them in one inning stints and use them in clean innings as often as you can. Because I think when you venture out of that, I think you get yourself in trouble because then, Hey, it's a four out save. Well, why can't he, why can't he have a five out save? And I think yeah. you see guys over time get worn down. I think Kenley Jansen got worn down a yes, little he bit did. over time. Yes, he did. Think, you know, Brandon Morrow pitched seven games out in the world series and now we haven't seen him since, you know, things mm-hmm. like that, that, that stick out to me when, when usage, uh, you just kind of continue to, to hang on guys. I don't, I don't know how closely you still watch the game now, but obviously we have the Brewer fan producing Craig council really changed some things up with bullpen usage last fall with obviously, um, you know, Josh Hader working all over and Brandon Woodruff and all these guys, in the playoffs, when guys are kind of getting mixed and matched and getting used almost to exhaustion, is is that kind of where you leave it all on the field and you, you kind of tap into that part of your sensibility? Or is it guys are not being protected or being wise and protecting themselves for their careers at that point? 
Well, everything's off the table when it comes to playoffs, in yeah. my opinion, especially yeah. in those one-game playoff situations. Then, then I, I think there's nobody, you know, there's nobody that's smarter than than doing like what Council did. Is yeah, you know, he's bringing in his best guys to keep the game in check or to or to win a game sometimes in the third, fourth, or fifth inning. And that's very, really smart because sometimes if if a, an inning blows up out of control early in the game like that, you never recover from it. What about the opener? Would you like to pitch with an opener? Like, let's say a flame-throwing righty pitches the first inning, and then you come in, you know, throwing from the left side, and you can kind of mess with some matchups. No, I, I, I'm not a fan of that at all, to be yeah. honest with you. I, I think I think over time, over 162 games, I think having five solid starters that you can trust to go out there. Now, now that being said, there's not always teams that have five solid starters right. that they can trust. So, so that's where some of that stuff comes into play. But if if you go back and look over clubs that have five guys that, that go to post every every fifth day and they make their starts, they usually do okay. Is there a manager in the game today that you would especially like to play for if you were still playing? Oh wow! Well, there's a few still uh, managers. Yeah, yeah, that's I true. That's true. For. You know, I love Buddy Black. I love uh, playing for Clint Hurdle. Um, I feel like Bochi would be good too. Uh, Bochi would be awesome. I love him. Yeah, he. I never got to not, never got to be with him, but yeah, there's there's a lot of good ones. I I think that um, I think the young guys. I think uh, Brad Osmus. I thought Matheny uh, was a great manager. Um, so you know, there's there's a there's a hopefully some up and coming guys you'll see too. All right, two two more questions. We'll let you go. What was your favorite city on the road? Well, Chicago and New York, which I you know obviously hit as as home cities and road cities. And then I loved going out to the West coast that to me, that NL West is like the, uh, the, the ultimate, yeah. um, place to go for all, all those cities are fun. You know, when you're in that league, well, it, I guess uh, an addendum are home cities when you're only in a team or with a team for a year or two, do they become home cities or are they kind of road cities too? Because you're living in a hotel or maybe a, an apartment with your family or, or whatever. Do you ever really settle in? No, they're still road cities, but, but, you know, you're there, um, you know, throughout all those, those 81 to 90 home, yeah, home yeah. days, you know, with some off days mixed in there. They, 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 they become a little bit of home, but yeah, it, that's exactly right. What you're saying. They're still kind of a road city. All right. Last one. And we'll let you get going. Uh, who's the best teammate you had, or maybe best handful of teammates that you can remember, because we love to obviously shine some light on the good guys in the game. Oh gosh, I've had a bunch, you know, like, like those Kansas city guys were still buddies to this day, Mike Sweeney. And, and, uh, in Chicago, I'm, I'm still really close with Ryan Dempster and Kerry Wood and Mark mm-hmm. Pryor. Um, and then, uh, you know, there, there's so many over the years, but those guys, I still spend a lot of time with Dempster. I love doing, uh, I actually did a show with him last year. He does, he does a, um, uh, a show that's very similar, like a, like a, letterman or a leno type show so i was his uh assistant on the show so we had a blast (laughs) how how did i not ask you about prior pv and sheets i mean that's like that's like the trifecta of young pitchers from that era isn't it maybe rich harden yeah they were rich harden they were all uh incredible and and fun to watch Uh, unfortunately um you know mark's career got cut a little shorter than than we all wished it would have well, and some of those Mets you were with, Bobby Jones, I don't know if Bill Pulsifer was still there, but they had some guys. Isringhausen was supposed to be a big stud, and 
really only Isringhausen caught on and he was a closer. So it's amazing the attrition rate of young pitchers, whether they throw hard, soft, or somewhere in between. And, you know, to get a decade plus in the game, that has to feel pretty good when you reflect on it. Oh, there's no doubt. I, I look back and I'm very thankful for everything I got to experience and enjoy. And, and uh, you know, the, o- the only thing missing would be a, a, a first place World Series ring. I got a second place one. Hey, we can't complain about that. Thank you so much for your time. Hopefully you enjoyed it as much as we did. Hopefully we can talk to you again sometime soon. Follow him on Twitter at Glendon Rush, R-U-S-C-H. Good stuff there. Thank you so much for taking the time out, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. All right, thanks. Thanks for having me. So for Glendon Rush, former big league lefty Justin in studio here producing, this is Brandon Warren saying so long, and thank you for listening to Midwest Swing, part of the Zone Coverage Podcast Network. 